Morning. It's definitely a lot different up here. Um, let me introduce myself. My name is Brandon Schaus. Um, I've been a part of the church now for about two years, um, and I can't say enough about, one, how humbled I am to be able to teach this morning, and i um, thankful to all the elders for allowing me to do that. It's a, a great privilege, and um, I can't say enough thanks to you all. And um, I've said many thanks to some of you individually, but just as a whole, um, really can't say how much of a blessing that the church has been to me and my wife. Um, for those of you who know us, we went through uh, kind of a hard transition, and uh, you all have been just wonderful. And, and I want you to know that your, your elders love you. Um, they have loved on my family so much, and uh, just hearing their words and how much uh, they speak of the church and how much they love the church, um, it, it has been massively encouraging to us. Um, especially with where we came from and then what we faced. Um, so I wanted to say that before I got started today and to thank you all because you really have been such a, a, a huge blessing to us. Um, so as we look, uh, we're kind of going to depart a little bit from the book of Ruth today. And um, I, I'm excited because we'll, we'll actually be in 2 Corinthians 7, uh, but it's going to reflect greatly on the topic that we are covering in Ruth. And, and that is uh, concerning repentance but uh, specifically godly and worldly grief. Um, we see this really, really magnified in the book of Ruth when we're looking at Naomi and Ruth specifically and how they grieve differently. Uh, so we're going to take a, a really hard look at that, but this passage today deals with my favorite Bible character besides Jesus, because you know he's, he's got to be your favorite, um, is Paul. And, and so he, he really mirrors this, as, as Scripture always does. It's very multi-perspectival. It, it all weaves its own inner web. We're going to take a really hard look at this today, and it's going to relate back to Ruth uh, perfectly. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, let's turn to 2 Corinthians 7, and uh, we'll only be looking at verses 5 through 13. Now, let's see if I can get this. There we go. Now, I will tell you, um, I'm not used to teaching quite as long as uh, as Matt and Rusty are. So I hope you guys aren't upset if I go a little short today. I can try to throw some extra stuff in there, maybe read uh, some extra stories and things like that if you want me to. Uh, but we'll <laughs> So I, I have a question before we read today. Um, have you ever tried to teach someone something only to have it fall on deaf ears? <laughs> I see some chuckles. One of the most annoying things, right? Whenever you're trying to present a point, especially um, something that, that matters, right? Uh, but, but when you're trying to teach someone something, I think of, of my kids. Uh, for those of you who have children, you know, you're trying to teach them something that, that might be a point of wisdom that, that might help them in life, and you look over and they're just not getting it. And it, it's, oh, it's annoying, right? You just want to, you want to take the action. You want to be the Holy Spirit. You want to make them see what is truth, and then they won't see it. Um, I had an instance that, that have far less to do with major life issues, but just more to do with annoyance. Uh, I work for Verizon, and um, I, I used to work kind of more in the public sector. Now I just work with businesses, so, you know, shameless, uh, <laughs> a, little, <laughs> a little shameless throw out there if you know any businesses want to work with me. Um, but I, I, used, I used to work with the consumer market, and um, I, I worked in a local store for a while, and uh, we, I had a lady come in. We, we've seen all sorts of, of crazy people. My wife is, I'm sure, tired of the stories. Uh, but we, I had one lady. I think she took the cake. Uh, she came in, and she had some phone issues. She was uh, going to be traveling. And we covered those, and she was really struggling. Uh, but, but she specifically wanted to get an app for her phone. 
And uh, <laughs> I, I told her that to get the app for the phone, she had to go to the Play Store. Now, you guys all know where the Play Store is on your phone, right? It's where you, you get apps. Uh, for those of you who have Apple, it's the Apple Store. Uh, but she had the Play Store, and uh, she had an Android. And, and so I, I tried to show her it was, and she was like, no, I, um, I'll go get that, but where is the Play Store, is what she told me. And uh, I was like, no, it's, ma'am, it's, it's not a place. It's on your phone. Like, it's, it's an app. She said, I know it's an app. Where do I buy it? And I was like, ma'am, no, no, no. <laughs> And I, I proceeded, she's like, stop messing with my phone and tell me, are, are you putting it in my GPS? I'm like, no, 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 it's on the phone. And she's like, I'm getting really frustrated. <laughs> and I, and I, said, I said, ma'am, ma'am, it, it's on the phone here. I'm trying to show you, it's the Play Store. She's like, I know it's the Play Store. I want to know where it is. Show me on a map where I can drive to the Play Store. And I was like, ma'am, it's not, and I, I'm serious. We went back and forth for about 20 minutes. She still, to this day, I'm convinced she doesn't know what the Play Store is, where the Play Store is, and she went, she left trying to go drive to the Play Store. Um, and that was really, really frustrating. Well, we see, um, as we look at, at, at this passage today, we're going to see where Paul has some very tense moments. Um, he, he's very depressed. He's, he's very sad. He's very uh, concerned about the church at Corinth and whether or not they are hearing his message, and whether or not they are hearing and heeding his advice, or it's falling on deaf ears. And uh, I think to myself with my children when I'm trying to communicate a truth to them, and it's not getting through, and how much more anxiety Paul was feeling in this moment as a, a church that he had poured so much of his life into was, was really at a place, at a precipice, uh, where something really terrible could happen. And Paul is very concerned. He's very anxious. And uh, I think back in these biblical times where you couldn't just text the church and see how they were doing, right? He had to wait months and months and months to send letters and send people and get correspondence to know what was going on. So, so this stress was just building in his life. Let's read uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 5 through 13. For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without fear within. But God, who confronts the downcast, conformed us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your logging, your mourning, your zeal for me, and that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved unto repentance. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret." Whereas worldly grief produces death. For seeing what earnest this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment, at every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnest for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, therefore we are conformed. 
This passage is, is loaded with so much truth, and um, I want to get us kind of into the background before we focus in. So I, I've, I've said a little bit here. In the background, we see um, that, that Paul, in verse 6, is, is depressed. Um, and, and he struggles here because he's struggling with the state of the church at Corinth. Most commentators will tell you that it seemed that there had been a ringleader that emerged in the church of Corinth, and uh, that ringleader had, had kind of churned up an anti-Paul movement. And when confronted by Paul, the man did not change, and the church did nothing to stop his attacks or to punish him. So this deeply hurts Paul. He was especially sad, not because the church wasn't listening to him, but because the church was isolating themselves from God's truth spoken through him. So you can see why Paul's anxiety is building because he writes this severe letter and he's waiting for the response to how the church will react and where the church is at and whether or not this movement, this mob has rose against him and has completely cut off God's word. So we see in, as we look at verse 12, he'd already written the first letter and now he is going to see how he was addressed. So verse 12 so, along, so although I wrote to you, it is not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, uh, nor for the sake of the ones who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnest for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. This hindrance and this... So we see here that this, is a, a, this hindered the zeal of the church itself. And again, Paul is writing this severe letter, this stern letter to stir their hearts. And I, I think about this because I, I think about how hard it must have been for Paul thinking about whether or not the people's trust had been earned, whether or not it had been won. I look at, at our country and political climates and how whenever you have an anti-this or an anti-that or a movement one way or a movement other way, and people are, are texting and Facebooking and memeing and doing all of this, I picture the Church of Corinth not having all that, but still doing those things in their own way. And Paul wondering, man, what is happening? How are they going to respond to this stern letter that I have written? Are they going to respond godly or, or are they going to reject? Are they going to depart? Um, so Paul most likely sends this letter with Titus in Asia uh, because we see this in, in chapter 2 verse 13 that he hoped to meet up with Titus at Troas, but he doesn't. But here he is able to. So in, in verses 6 and 7 we see what happens. Titus is coming with the news from the church at Corinth. And we know based on what we just read, that it's good news. Um, that they are full of God's zeal and that they are restored and that the problem has been resolved. And then in verses 8 through 10, we now see that Paul shows how that zeal was truly restored through godly grief, which is going to be our primary focus today. He begins verse 8 by speaking to the regret that he felt for how much pain that the severe letter had caused the people. Um, and I find it interesting, the first time I read through this, you know, Paul's kind of like, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm sad that I sent it, but I'm not sad that I sent it. And I'm like, what is, what, what is this? What's going on? Is he sad? Is he happy? What is Paul saying? And, and essentially, what Paul is telling the people is, is that he's, he finds no pleasure in causing them pain, but it was necessary. Right? It was a necessity. He found no pleasure in writing this severe and stern letter, 
but it was necessary. He had to do it. However, he did find pleasure in something, and that was the response. He says, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repentance. So his focus here is not that he made them sorry. It's how they responded when they were sorry. How they responded whenever they saw sin. That is what godly grief leads us to. It leads us to repentance. Uh, Verse 10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. In contrast, worldly grief stops at remorse. He says, what's he say? Whereas worldly grief produces death. There may be a deep regret, but not actual change. Right? So that's one of the differences is we're going to dive into this when we get into our points. We see that godly grief does produce change. It produces unity. It produces mending. But we see worldly grief, contrastly, not doing that. It just is a regret. So in verse 11, Paul encourages the reader with the outworking of God's grief. Verse 11 again, For see what earnestness that godly grief has produced in you, but also the eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proven yourselves innocent in the matter. This letter that had been so severe and caused so much shame on the people had also brought unity through godly grief and renewed a desire for useful fellowship. It had mended once broken relationships. I think it's very easy for us to look at Scripture and not realize how blessed, how miraculous, how awesome this really was. Have you guys ever been a part of a mob mentality where you're trying to convince someone, a group of people of something you know to be true, and it simply falls on deaf ears? It's hard, right? Because you're finding pride, you're finding affirmation, you're, you're finding solace in that group that thinks they're right. And that confirmation bias builds like a snowball. So Paul had every right to be upset and to be fearful of what was happening, not because he had a lack of faith in God, but because he knew the hearts of men. He's seen what had already happened. He's seen that the church had already responded incorrectly. And so seeing this zeal restored, seeing this this unity made, had to fill him with so much glee and happiness. It must have been an awesome, wonderful sight. And it's beautiful to read these words as he pins them because we see scripturally such a defined difference of grief. So what is worldly grief? What is godly grief? Let's look first at worldly grief. Worldly grief causes death, right? It causes separation. There are four major points um, to worldly grief. Uh, Number one, I would say when we're trying to identify it, we would say it's, it's always horizontal. Worldly grief is always horizontal, right? This is you got me. I, I got caught, right? Uh-oh. <laughs> like, I'm in trouble. I, I realize now that I'm sad because I got caught. Um, William, uh, is William in here this morning? Good, I'm going to tell a story about him, so don't tell him. <laughs> um, so, so William's nine, and um, he, he's crazy. Um, and he, he got in trouble in school last year, 
And, and I remember he, I used to, I, I, I'd pick him up some days, and I picked him up this day from school, and he's kind of hanging his head, and he was sad, and I could tell something was wrong. I'm like, William, um, what's wrong, bud? I don't want to talk about it. Well, what? Okay, but what, <laughs> what's bothering you? And he's like, well, I don't want to talk about it, but I got in trouble. And uh, I said, what'd you get in trouble for? I don't want to talk about it. I'm like, William, we're going to, like, so we went back and forth for a while. I'm not going to keep with what I talking about. But eventually, he was like, I got on red, which is like, they do colors. I, do you guys, did you, I did names, like my name on the board, the check mark, right? And then like the other check, and then like you were, they were going to kill you after. I don't know what they did, the third check mark. <laughs> um, but, but like, at least I could get, they have like, colors. They're like on green and like blue and red. And I think it's just to confuse us. There's a yellow in there somewhere. But, but red's bad, right? Like universally, I know that's bad. So, I'm, and I, he'd never told me he'd been on red before. He'd been on yellow a couple times and some other things. So I'm like, I know this is really bad. So I was like, William, what were, um, what were you on red for? Again, I don't want to talk about it. Um, <laughs> so, so anyway, he didn't want to talk about it. And, um, and finally, I, I got him to talk about it, and he said, um, and he's like, well, um, me, and, me and Delmer were in the back of the class making, uh, making uh, gas noises. Um, <laughs> and and I, I couldn't help but laugh, right? Um, but uh, we, we talked about it, but he, he, had, he didn't get in trouble for that anymore. Um, and, and it's funny because he would have continued to do it. In fact, he did. That's why he got on red. Um, until the, the punishment was severe enough, right? He, he got caught. Was he sad that he did it? No, it was fun. Um, but he was sad that he got caught and that he was in trouble. And this is so true for us with worldly grief. It, it's not that we feel remorse because we've sinned against God or we've even sinned against others. It's that we feel remorse because you got me, right? I realize now that I've upset someone, and I don't want to deal with that upsetting someone, so I'm going to say I'm sorry. There might be tears involved. There, there might be some anguish. There might be some snot, but there's no real repentance. There's no real change. It's just horizontal. Nothing to do with the acknowledgement of God or that we've sinned against Him. It is simply emotional and not spiritual, I think, unfortunately, we are conditioned for this in our culture, right? Uh, we're very emotionally driven. We're, we're very uh, taught to, to be driven by how we feel, what we want, what will please us most. In fact, uh, even as kids, what, are, what do parents ask their kids? What do you want to be when you grow up? You know, we're, we're fueled by choices, emotionally driven. Um, so, essentially, it's, worldly grief is based on convenience, Right? We will stop doing something as long as it is inconvenient. But when it's convenient to do it again or do other sin, we tend to go towards that. That, that is why so many of us as Christians have pet sins that we go to. We're not being caught for them. Right? This is why so many Christians are so legalistic. We have the check mark of really bad ones, you know, that we don't do over here. And then we have like the, the it's okay right? It's all right that, that I do this. It's all right that I treat my kids this way. It's, it's all right that I drive this way. It's all right that I talk this way. It's okay that I act this way. It's okay that I don't do this or I do this, because that's all right. That's why we breed legalism. It's because we aren't really sorry. We just don't want to be caught, and we really don't like that feeling of feeling bad. And so as long as we can avoid that, we have worldly grief, and we're okay to stew in it. 
So it, it, we see that it's horizontal. We also see that we try, to tra- we try to tame or we try to tame sin with worldly grief. We try to tame or train sin. Do any of you know who Timothy Treadwell is? Have you heard of Timothy Treadwell? So you will, once I start telling the story, you'll be like, oh, oh yeah. So a couple years back, Discovery ran, I think it was Discovery is one of them, uh, ran a show where this, this guy was called the Grizzly Man, right? And he went out, and for 13 years, this guy lived with bears. Now, it was only 13 years. Did he retire? Well, kind of. Um, yeah, the bear killed him, right? I mean, that, that, that's kind of what happens when you live with grizzly bears for 13 years. And, and if you watched him on TV, I mean, this guy was nuts. He would, he would go play with the bear. I mean, it wasn't like he was like in a cabin and there were bears around. It was like literally this guy was like in a tent and he was like hanging out with them and like laying on the ground with them. He got these giant grizzly bears all around him. And the whole time, all he preached, all he said, he wrote a book. You know, he brought, he, it's it really tragic when he died. His girlfriend was there with him. Like he had other people out there. And the whole time he's preaching that he is in control. I understand these bears' behavior. I can read them like a book. I am completely in control. And he wasn't. He thought he owned those bears, but for 13 years, those bears owned him. They were his, they, he was their plaything. He thought he was taming the bears, but they are wild animals. And for us, we do the same thing with sin. We try to tame it. We think we own it. All the while, it's mauling us. All the while, it's stealing a limb. And we just keep going back. Some of us don't have any limbs left. We're still talking about how we're in control. We're letting sin continue to eat us. Letting sin continue to destroy us. We just keep going back and talking about how much control we have. We're completely out of control. Number three. And this kind of links with two, but it's full of pride and avoids consequences. So worldly grief, it's always horizontal. We try to tame it, and it's full of pride and avoids consequences. We tend to blame others when we're caught. We blame others for our actions. Jesus, we'll, we'll even blame the bear, right? The sin. We'll say it's the sin's fault, or it's, it's your fault, for letting me do this. We think that we have control, again, when we simply do not. We think that we can tame the bear. We think that we know better. How many times have you seen that? You you can see it in others' lives, but not our own. That's probably the hardest thing. We see people do something crazy, like live with bears, and like, not me. Right? I, I don't like, I don't like open water. Right? We, um, April and I went a couple years back for our 10-year anniversary. We went to Mexico, had a great time. Do you know when we fought? We got in a little kayak and got out in open water <laughs> because we were both terrified. Now, now, leading up to the kayaking was great for April because they're supposed to have a guide that, that comes out with you with the boat and like helps you go out. Well, we didn't have the guide. It was just, it, we just got the, 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 it's not even a guide, like just someone who works there. I'm making it sound bigger than what it is. Just some dude supposed to help us get in the boat, right? No dude on the beach. So I'm like, it's okay, babe. We got, I got this. So I put April in the kayak and put me in the kayak. Well, 
putting me in the kayak, <laughs> April's back there laughing, putting me in the kayak was a little harder than I thought. And so we're on the, you know, the now granted, there's waves and stuff, but I go to get in and it flips. And there I go, I'm, I'm, I'm off. And April somehow stays upright. So I'm off, I get in again, I'm out. I get in again, I'm out. And at this point, there's people on the beach that are laughing. I mean, I'm making their vacation great. They're, they're just thinking it's hilarious. Finally, I don't know how, by some miracle, we get out to, to sea. Out to sea, I mean, like, we're in 15-foot water, maybe 10. And we're, we're trying to paddle. We're arguing over who's paddling where. We're arguing what's going to happen. We're going to fall out. I mean, it's, it was terrible. We got that kayak in as quick as we could because I felt out of control, and I didn't like it. That was me exercising non-reason. But so often in our lives, we, we go out into actual danger thinking we're in control, thinking we're fine, thinking we're not going to sink. And we're not taking our boat into 10-foot deep water. We're taking it out to sea. And God has told us that we should know better, but we simply still go. So we think that we're in full control. But all the while, we're just feeding our own lust, our own desires. And we're not really experiencing grief. We're just hoping we don't get caught and we can do as much as we can. And this is why it leads to death, right? Uh, It leads to not, it can necessarily be us physically dying, but in reference here, it's separation. It's, It's severed relationships. That's the death that it speaks of here, and then actual death. Number four, worldly grief will result and lead to death. This means that we have no freedom. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 puts it best. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, or is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. So the Lord, he can hear. He can see, he can touch, he can save. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Worldly grief is not grief to repentance. It is just simply us feeling bad and trying to feel better and finding something else to make us feel better. It leads to death and separation from God. So contrastly, godly grief. Godly grief leads to unity. Godly grief leads to us actually being sorry and finding repentance and finding change. Four things I want to focus on with godly grief. Uh, One is it has sight. As we build into this, I want us to understand first we must see our sin for what it is. We must see our sin as Christ sees it. So we must see our sin. And, And for all of us, we are blind before Christ reveals it. But once we are a child of God, Sin is revealed through God's word and through the Holy Spirit working actively in each and every one of our lives. For many of us, we have created blind spots to sin through only reacting in worldly grief. We see this example of of, um, someone really coming to their sight, as Matt talked about recently in the prodigal son. Right In the prodigal son, uh, many of you know the the reference. You know, he he left and took his, his father's Riches, his inheritance, he spent it all frivolously on, on prostitutes, on drink, on other people, and, and just threw it all away. And he finds himself eating pig slop, basically living almost as a slave. And it's in this moment in Luke 15, 16, it says, And he was 
lodging to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here in hunger? I will rise and go to my father. It's like this aha moment where the prodigal son is literally sitting in filth. It takes him that long to understand his predicament. He's eating pig food. And Scripture says he came to himself. The light came on. What am I doing? I am in sin. And, and guys, it's so easy for us to look at that and for me to say, man, what an idiot. But it's describing each and every one of us. As we sit in our sin and we believe we're in the right place, but we're nowhere near God. For many of us today, we need to look and take a hard look at our heart and where we're at and say, what, what filth am I living in? What sins am I struggling with that I need to come to myself and I need to see through God's Word and through the Holy Spirit that the ways of the Father are much better than my ways? That being fed at His table is far better than eating this pig slop that I am ingesting in myself. So it brings sight to us. It shows us our faults. And it shows us where we have sinned. John says that if we say that we have no sin, the love of Christ is not in us. You see, God's Word and having this sight is like an MRI that reveals our faults. And we don't have to pay a crazy deductible for it. Because <laughs> if you try to get an MRI, it's impossible. Um, it, it reveals our faults. It looks in and shows us and encourages us to drag them out into the light. And that's what brings sorrow. So godly grief brings or gives us sight to see sin. And number two, it brings sorrow. It brings sorrow. And sorrow here means the embitterment of the soul. The embitterment of the soul. We see this in various characters in the Bible. Um, we see some crazy stuff, which I don't necessarily encourage you to do. But Jeremiah, um, as he begins to see sin in his life, actually starts beating his own leg. Um, we see also Ezra pulling out his hair, which, man, I must have been in a lot of sin. Uh, but, but Ezra pulls out his own hair. He actually yanks it out. There, there are many that, that fast and they do various things to themselves. Uh, but we see a, a clear and distinct sorrow. Uh, Luke 7.36 is, is a great story here for us really to understand what sorrow looks like. It says, And one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. So in reference here, we have Christ here that's eating with the Pharisees. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she had learned that she was reclined at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought in an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair of her head and kiss his feet and anoint them with ointment. I want us to understand the context of what's going on here. This woman that, that comes into Christ in this Pharisee's house is a prostitute. 
And, and, and she has been shamed in ways that we can't begin to understand. Her life has been filled with many poor choices and most likely many abuses. And as she is sobbing here with Christ, he lifts her head and tells the Pharisees that they have done nothing for him that the woman has done. And then he begins to attack the Pharisees' self-righteousness. He wants us to look at her sorrow. Does she have hurts? Could she blame others for the position that she has been put in in life? Yes. But here's the main point of it all. She is owning her sin. She's not throwing it on someone else. And I never realized this when looking at this passage, how powerful this is. This woman is full of shame. She comes into a house that isn't her own, with everyone there knowing who and what she is, with everyone there mocking her for what she is very clearly in their own self-righteousness except Christ. Because Christ sees her heart for what it is. Christ sees that she is full of sorrow and anguish and owning her sin and dragging it out into the light and coming to him. All the while, the Pharisees are sitting back and judging, hating, and not looking to see the miracle that's taking place right there in front of their eyes. How often are we in this same boat? How often are we the Pharisee in self-righteousness looking upon other sins while having the beam in our own eye. I think we need to be very careful of this and also learn from her sorrow. Learn from her shame. Learn from what she was willing to do. When we have that sight, and that sight brings us sorrow, not just I messed up, but we actually are sad. We understand that we need to confess which is number three, godly sorrow brings confession. Godly sorrow brings confession. So it's important that we draw some distinctions here. Um, We see that worldly sorrow is passive, but godly sorrow is active. And remember, we talked about how worldly grief or sorrow is only vertical. uh, I'm sorry, it's only horizontal. It's not vertical. Well, the difference here is that godly grief and sorrow is both horizontal and vertical, but in in a more powerful way. See, confession goes both vertical and horizontal. We see this in Psalms 32.5. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. The vertical. We've sinned against God first and must confess. The horizontal here is different, though. It's not just I got caught. It's that then we are willing to confess our sins one to another. This is something we miss. Right? Because I think when we're talking about godly grief, we really just focus a lot on the vertical. Right? God, I'm sorry. I feel better now and I'm okay. That a lot of times is just worldly grief. That's just us trying to be vertical. We're not actually sorry to God. We're sorry that we felt bad against sinning against God. 
And there's a difference, right? I've talked to my kids about this. It's, we learned, I learned so much from my kids about how awful I am. And, and this is so true when, when, you, when you talk to them, and, and they'll be honest with you. That's a great part. Most kids are very honest about this. Why are you sorry? Because I got in trouble. <laughs> right? How many times is that true with God? Why are you sorry? It's because you know you were wrong and the Holy Spirit's convicted you and now you just want to get rid of that feeling. Being vertical with God is more than just confession. It begins there. But then it's also that we're willing to confess one to another. This is what church is for. This is what DNA groups are for. This is what accountability is for. This is what your brothers and sisters in Christ are for. Is that one... We are confessing our sins one to another. And two, we're, we're finding others that we're helping grow in their sin as well. This is integral, and this is something that, that I'm still learning and growing in, and I, I believe we all should be, because this is hard. Right? It's hard to let other people know you. But, but is it true if, if someone knows you, they know every part of you, they know who you are, can they find blame? Can they, can they find fault in you? Can they be surprised? No. But boy, it's scary, isn't it? Because you know you, and I know me. And I know for most of us, we feel like we're a hundred times worse than what we really put on. But guys, it's integral that we are sharing one with another, not pridefully, but shamefully, so that we can receive help. Because the truth of the matter is, for most of us, we're Americanized and we're enslaved to branding ourselves. We're enslaved to the brand. We're, we're enslaved to creating something that we're not. I'm the best mom on the plat. I'm the best dad. I'm the best coach. I'm the best player. I'm the best kid. I'm the best student. We want that brand, don't we? We want that notoriety. You know, it's funny on that. I learned a lot on my trip to Mexico that was not so good about myself. And um, one thing I learned was we were walking the streets of, of Playa del Carmen, and it's kind of like a touristy area. And uh, one, I'm about this sure that we got this close to being mugged because I'm an idiot and let someone drag me into a back alley. But that's either here or there. I had, um, and that same almost mugging night, I had these guys approach me with, uh, with, with sunglasses. I think I've talked about this in house gathering before. I, I can't remember. But uh, it, it stuck in my mind because it was a real heart check moment. These guys approached me with sunglasses and, and they, were, they were like um, Oakley, but like spelled different. <laughs> Oakley, <laughs> like, you know, like Ray-Band, but like R-A-E band um, sunglasses. And they, they look like the real thing. I mean, they, they look great. These awesome sunglasses. I was like, man, these are super cheap. I should get some of these. Why did I want them? Now, now, first off, is there anything wrong with Oakley sunglasses or Ray-Ban or anything? No, I'm not, I'm not, we're not like saying y'all need to go, you know, not wear like, wear like plain shirts or something. I'm not, I'm not going that there. But what I am saying is my heart was in the wrong place for me. I wanted them to look cool, right? Which, I mean, I need all the help I can get, but come on. Like I wanted them to look, so I thought, man, these are awesome, like really expensive glasses and I'm paying like, you know, $10 for them, but they're not really, really just look really real. I'm branding myself. Why? Want to look cool. Want to have cool stuff. We're so conditioned to do that. We're so conditioned from the time we were a little kid. And, and man, when I was a kid, it was starter jackets. 
You know, everybody, if you're cool, you got started, you got Converse, you got starter glasses. You know, when I was really little, it was the Power Rangers. You know, and, and we're conditioned all the way up to have all of those nice things. And again, it's not wrong to have nice things. But it's wrong when we placed our trust in them and when we try to build an identity. And as we get older, we do the same things around other parents, around, you know, when we're kids, around other kids. We try to build this brand that is not real. And so what happens is when we're given the task of confessing our sin one to another, we can't do it because we don't want to feel that shame, right? We don't really want to own who we are, but that's not what scripture teaches us. We should be an open book. We should be helping one another because here's the thing. When someone else understands the sin that I struggle with and that I can overcome it, not because I'm good, but because God is, they can too. But more importantly, it strengthens in rela our relationship with Christ. So godly sorrow brings confession and lets us put our sin to death together. And then number four, godly grief leads to action and surrender. And this is often the tipping point. This is often the point that I believe that we miss. I think that, that a lot of us go through and we can see our sin very plainly. A lot of us are, are sorrowful. We genuinely are sad. We're genuinely sad to Christ, to God, to, to, to whoever we've offended, whatever it might be. We're genuinely upset. And a lot of us got confession down real good. We might even be sharing our sins with others. We might be going vertical and horizontal in, in the whole nine yards. But we get to this last part, action and surrender. And that's where I struggle most. It's where the ball gets dropped the most. Because we will actually, in this, be ashamed of our sin. We will hate our sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we'll give up the root of our sin. This is huge. Because I believe the reason that we fail in overcoming sin is right here in most cases. We focus, we tend to, I tend to focus on the fruits of sin rather than the root of what is causing that sin. And so here's what happens. We're, we're like, man, God, I am really sorry that I am growing these crab apples in my life, right? These crab, have you guys ever had crab? The crab apples stink. I hate the trees. They're awful. So that's why I'm using them. I just don't like them. Um, but God, I, I hate these crab apples. They're terrible. I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry that my life is producing these crab apples. But we're still a crab apple tree. And we pick all the crab apples and we throw them all away. And then guess what grows in the next season? More crab apples. And they just keep coming back. You know, if, if you had a chance, uh, we recently went through a series on, um, it was Tuesday or Wednesday nights, over at Arbor Church. And uh, Rusty taught on biblical counseling. And within that session, um, I, I was a part of the other one, but within that session, he, he talked about this concept of, of the roots of our sin and the fruits that they produce and we got to talk a little bit about this in house gathering too, but I just think it's, it's awesome how if, if you get a chance to read any of Paul Tripp, he really just, just hammers this point away that, that we need to find these roots. 
And, and the way we do it is essentially this. We have, we have a root, which is our heart, that, that grows and gleans the fruits of our life. And the way they're grown and gleaned is through the heat that's applied to our life from hardship. And we all have it, right? Maybe you not have hardship. We, <laughs> it, it comes. And, and, and how our fruit is grown is by the root of how we react. So let me ask you this. When something bad happens, what fruit are you producing? I, and I see, this, I see this most actionable, again, in the, in the lives of kids. Um, we, we are adopting two boys, and um, they're two totally different. They're brothers. Um, they're only about a year and a half apart, and they couldn't be more different. One, uh, the, the oldest, Jordan, is two, and he is a perfectionist, and he has OCD like I've never seen. His brother, Mason, is one, and he is a monster who is not a perfectionist and wants to eat, pillage, and destroy everything in his path. So you can understand how these, these wonderful um, different personalities get along. I, I, I can't wait to see as they get older how that's going to happen, because I, I don't think Mason's going to care one bit about a cabinet being open or something being picked up or anything like that. And I think Jordan is going to be like having the broom out and following everybody around, and it's, it's going to be awesome, right? It's going it's to be amazing. But here's the thing. Whenever stuff bad happens to either of them, man, you know it, right? Because kid, little kids are all emotion, right? They're driven by what's in front of them. They're driven by whatever they have. And a great picture of it, I, I can give a hundred of them. But last night on Airfit, we were getting Mason out of the bathtub and he had a washcloth. Okay. And he's like, ah, 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 ah. you know, he's one, he's throwing washcloth everywhere. He's going crazy. Well, when you're drying off a kid, you know what you don't want? A giant wet washcloth that's spinning, spitting water everywhere. So April took the washcloth away, gave me Mason. I'm going to get him dressed. And guess how Mason reacts to losing the washcloth? really well, right? No. No, 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 no. I mean, it is, he's throwing a fit. He's saying, mama, mama, mama. There's tears. There's a crocodile. Like, it is, it, he's throwing his body everywhere. Like, he's going, I'm just trying to get him dressed. You know, I'm trying to get a diaper on. He's, ah. you know, the whole world, his entire universe has come to a screeching halt because the wet washcloth has been taken from him. Now, five minutes later, he's drinking a bottle. He didn't know what happened. He didn't care about the washcloth anymore. But guys, I look at that in my own heart, in my own life, and I see that. I so often am driven by the washcloth, the thing that doesn't matter at all, but I've made a big deal and I've had an emotional reaction. We get this way with work, with sickness, with our children, with all this stuff that to God, to God, is that a big deal? Seriously, is it? And I think God looks at us, like I look at my little kids and he's like, I have promised you that you are my child. I have promised you heaven. I have promised that I will love you. Why is that not enough? And we're playing with our washcloth, getting mad because we lost it. We react emotionally, not godly. And whenever that heat is applied in our life, whenever you don't get to watch the game you wanted to watch, whenever you don't get to go to the school function that you wanted to go to, whenever your parents tell you something that you don't like, whenever your mom or dad upsets you um, as an adult, and whenever you are, are, are mad about your spouse or your kids or your job or traffic, how are you reacting? Still cranking out crab apples, 
Because the root is what must be replaced. And here's the thing. What's going to happen a lot, to a lot of us is that we're going to think that we're producing a different fruit. It's still crab apple. It's still sin, but it's a little different. It's some other sin. Because we might be able to pluck that out, but we're just often replacing it with some other type of crab apple, some other type of sin, because we've never addressed the root issue. And so now, maybe it's this. Maybe we have struggled, right, with, let's just, let's just throw it out there, it's very common. We have struggled with wanting to watch a show and making it, prioritizing it over other people. You guys have never done that, right? Like football games on or your favorite shows on. Now, now, granted, in today's time, it is a lot easier because we got the DVR. I remember when I was a kid, like you had to like time bathroom breaks between shows, right? Like, like you were like, <laughs> you were sprinting to get snacks. You were sprinting to go anywhere because you didn't have a DVR. You couldn't even pause it. Now we can pause it. and We're still like, I don't want to do it, right? Hold on. So let's say you overcome that sin of prioritizing a television over your kids or your parents or, or whatever, we then can get prideful in that sin and start putting it into something else if we've not addressed the root issue, which is the heart. Why? Why are we doing this? Why are we reacting this way? Because here's the thing. If, if we don't get that, all we're going to do is produce a cycle here where we see sin, we confess sin, we feel bad about sin, and then we just go do it again. We have to address the root. So how do we do that? I put together some heart questions um, that I think we can ask ourselves to find the root, to pull it out, to replant the tree so that we're growing godly fruit, not worldly fruit. So where or when do I tend to doubt the truth of Scripture? The first one, where or when do I tend to doubt the truth of Scripture? Is this in, in how you function as a husband, how you function as a wife, how you function as a child in your house? Is this to do with church attendance, with tithing? Is this to do with how you view your uh, membership in a church, how you view your servanthood in a church? Where do you doubt Scripture? Is this to do with language? Where do we doubt the truth of Scripture? It's all true. Where are we doubting it? When do you tend to experience fear, worry, or anxiety? It's a great way for us to find the root of our sin. When we're looking at what makes us fearful, what gives us anxiety, what upsets us? Is it losing someone that we love? Is it, is it losing a, a position, a job, a relationship? What brings us anxiety? Is it something to do with work? Where in your life have you struggled with bitterness? Who's upset you so much that you just keep going back? Who's upset you so much that you just can't let it go? This is a big one. Whose value system do you measure your life against? Or is it God's? Whose value system are you using? And kind of to go along with this, who must you please? Right? Who is, who is important? This is one that can get sticky. Right? Because we can think that by pleasing our children, or by pleasing our spouse, or by pleasing our boss, or by pleasing our parents, that we are living a godly life. But if we're not doing that to honor God, and we're just doing that to honor self, that is when we are in sin. 
Whose love and approval do you need? Who do you long to give you love? Who do you long to give you approval? Is it Christ first or is it someone else that satisfies you? Where do you find refuge, safety, comfort, escape, and security? Where do you find refuge, safety, comfort, escape, and security? Right? And one thing to understand with all of these things is that many of these things are good graces that God gives us. God gives us some awesome things to, to help us to feel happy and to give us uh, many blessings of God and His grace. But when we're placing them before God, it's a big-time heart issue, and it's a root that causes us to produce poor fruit. What do you talk about? So whenever you're with friends, where's your conversation going? I know for me, it's filled with a lot of nonsense. I don't know about you guys. And some of that nonsense is good. It's part of relationship building. But what are we talking about? Does it, is it a talk track that is providing Christ and love in the lives of others? What do you spend your time on? Right? This is our excuse. And I hate this. I hate this term. I really do. And, and it's something, it's a pet peeve of mine that shouldn't be probably. But I hate when people say I didn't have time for that. And that's weird. Uh, you'll, you'll hardly ever catch me saying that. I tend to say I didn't make time for that because I feel like we all have time to do everything. We just prioritize what we want. And so when you say you didn't have time for that, it's kind of like you're putting yourself above that. Or like people, uh, this, <laughs> and this, again, this is me. This is all of me. I, I hate when, be, when people say like, oh, I don't have time in my life for that. Like, again, you do. We're just prioritizing other things, right? We have time to do what we want to do if we really want to do it. And I want you to think about even if, you have a bunch of other priorities, how much time you waste each day, and I'm proven right on this. Because we do, we waste a lot of time. So where are we spending that time? What are we doing with it? And also, what do you think about, or what do you love slash hate? Where does your mind wander throughout the day? It's very indicative of where our heart is, where our roots are. What are we obsessing over? What are we hating? What are we loving? What are we longing for? See, these are all interconnected, and they all rotate back to our heart. So the result of godly grief and confession is this. It brings freedom in our relationship with God. Malachi, or Malachi for those of you down south, 3.7 Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. What good news we have that we know that despite our sin, despite our deficiencies, despite our struggles, we have a perfect and wonderful Savior that wants to bring us back, that desires to use us, that desires us to be a tool used in his hands. What a great and awesome opportunity that we have this. Outstanding. Also, godly grief makes us useful again. This is huge. Godly grief makes us useful again. There's a passage I want to look at real quick. In uh, Luke 18, it says, 
In verse 18, while we walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon, this is Christ here, who he called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. Where they were fishermen, that's what they do. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going there, from he saw two brothers, James and the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, in a boat with Zebedee, their father. What were they doing? They were mending their nets, and he called them immediately. And they left their boat and their father and followed him. So a lot of you are, are probably thinking with this passage commonly used that, you know, you need to drop everything and follow Christ. And that, that, is, that is true. But I want to focus on something else here because I think it's something we often miss. It's their nets. Why did fishermen mend their nets? It's really a simple answer. It's so they would work. <laughs> because back in the day, they would throw their nets over the, the boat, they would get a bunch of fish, they'd lift it up, and they'd have fish in them, and they'd pull them onto the boat. Well, if there were holes in the nets, guess what happened? Yeah, the, the fish fell through. I mean, not, this is rocket science, right? <laughs> but this was so integral, and it had to happen all the time. They didn't have technology to, you know, go buy new nets all the time. They had to mend them constantly. They had to constantly keep upkeep. There was all sorts of, of kinks and knots in these nets from them mending them all of the time. And I think this is a beautiful picture of our relationship with Christ and how our nets so often need to be mended through godly grief. It doesn't always look the best, but it has to be done. And if it's not, we're not useful. Godly grief brings us back to that place where we are mended and now useful for Christ. But for so many of us, we're stuck not seeing our sin, not confessing our sin, not growing in Christ, not eliminating the root. And we're throwing out nets that do nothing. They're useless. And so I would say, and I would encourage us today to mend our relationship with Christ. To make ourselves useful again. Not just be sorry because we're caught, not just be sorry because we don't want to feel that way anymore. But to dig up the real root of our sin and the real problems and difficulties that we are struggling with and not only confess them to Christ, but confess them to each other and then to replant and grow good fruit. Grow from a heart that loves Christ and is mended, and has unity, and is full once again. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, I thank you so much for bringing us here today. I thank you for this great opportunity uh, to preach as we uh, look at repentance. Yeah, such a wonderful theme of the entire scripture, especially in the book of Ruth. And I pray today that you might grieve us, that you might convict us, to mend our relationship with you, to confess our sin, and to stop growing bad fruit, to start growing good fruit in you by eliminating the roots of our sin and planting the roots of your righteousness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.